are in Matthew chapter 6, and we are starting a, a series on prayer that will only use the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6 as the context of our study. So there will be much that we could study about prayer. We could study certain prayers. We could learn a lot from studying Hannah's prayer. But we will study the Lord's Prayer. And I am willing to accommodate calling it the Lord's Prayer, even though it's, in fact, the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. This is disciples' prayer. But this will be our study. So would you look with me at Matthew? I got that one right. Six. And let's start reading in verse 5. And when you pray, not if you pray, brother or sister, okay? Let's be foundational. When you pray, don't be like hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father. Here we go. Pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward. So when you pray, don't empty up, don't don't, uh, heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, which just a quick word, empty phrases as Gentiles do would be like quoting the Lord's Prayer over and over as your prayer. So it's ironic that we're told not to empty, offer up empty phrases, but sometimes we just use kind of from memory the Lord's Prayer, just a plug. Don't empty, don't offer up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Josh Sturm shared in his recent core seminar class that one pastor said, a helpful tool for meditating on Scripture is what's called emphatic reading. Okay? To emphasize the first word and read the sentence. And the next time you read the sentence, emphasize the second word. And the next time, emphasize the third word. It would sound like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our 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 Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. We'll get started with this series on prayer as the Lord taught us.
Maybe our need right now is to pray more often. In fact, could we as a group just admit that's the case? I, I mean, I, I believe, I believe this about you. I, I've not come and asked for inventory about your prayer, but I believe that several of you pray at length every day. I believe that. I'm thankful for that. But really, I mean, couldn't we still grow? I mean, if, if we tell each other we're giving the first two hours of our day in steadfast prayer, we could still grow. Okay. I'll tell you, though, my pastoral burden is not to call you to be edified in how much you pray, but how much you pray. In other words, I'm not, I'm not of the opinion, I've, I've been in church life my entire life, fairly intimately my entire life, and I, I don't have the current opinion that we need longer praying. But I do have an opinion that we need more prayer in our praying. I think, in fact, it's a bit of a cause and effect thing. I think sometimes the reason that we don't feel ourselves drawn into corporate prayers might be because we long for more praying in those praying meetings. I'm going to use as an example at the end of our time in this sermon the the contrast that most of us experience between lengthy praying together and lengthy singing together. It was a blessing to sing together this morning, wasn't it? I love coming and singing with you. It is really one of the greatest blessings from God to me is being able to sing with church. And you probably feel that way. I I don't usually get the request from people saying, could we cut out two or three songs? I mean, let's just sing a song and then get on to the praying and the preaching. I usually don't get that. We delight in singing. Do you feel, as I sometimes do, that your, your compulsion to praying is so much less than your compulsion to singing. And why might that be? I want to address that in the close. So I think that our need as a church is more prayer. But to be specifically, more prayer is a good thing for a pastor to invite his brothers and sisters to do. For a pastor to be invited by the word to do. But I want you to hear that I have a particular burden for more prayer in our praying. In other words, I was having a conversation with a man several months ago, and he commented on his appreciation for someone's prayer. And I stopped, and I thought, I know know his appreciation. I wonder what he means. And I said, "What, what do you mean by that? In other words, I'm currently dieting. It's obvious. Currently dieting. So I'm I'm living in that season of life where I get super frustrated every morning that all the starvation I experienced the day before didn't make any difference. That's where I'm at right now. And so I am skipping meals. 
Not because I'm forgetful, trust me. But I'm hoping that less intake and some expenditure of calories is going to benefit me. So I'm skipping meals. Well, you wouldn't come to me and say, oh, you didn't have lunch today. You're so good at fasting, right? That wouldn't be the conclusion about me skipping a meal to take in less calories and hopefully burn more than I take in. Yet, I would encourage you also not to think about times where we're uttering hopeful things in a Godward attitude necessarily as prayer either. The title for this first sermon, Jesus is such a great teacher. And the best I can do is convey to you plainly what Jesus has taught because it is so good. And he starts right away with an expression of that goodness by saying, okay, listen, I want you to pray like this. The very first thing is you need to understand, confess, feel in your soul the God to whom you pray. More prayer in our praying has to start right there. The one to whom we pray. Matthew 6, 9. I think it's an admirable pastoral flaw. that as I studied this week, I found myself unable to edit out so many things I read and studied. I wanted to share all of them with you. All of them. And I was lamenting on Friday to my family. I said, I have too much to share. And I'm just preaching, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And I have too much. I have to trim so much out. And... This morning I came in and I trimmed. Who is in heaven, holy be your name. And so I'm just preaching our Father today. There were supposed to be three points. I, I can only give you one. That's because I love preaching like our Father, right? I mean, I love that, you know. But it's also because I don't want to just jump into the Lord's Prayer and not tell you what Jesus is doing in Matthew, in Matthew 6 in this part in the Lord's Prayer. So there's going to be a lot of context. Let's get into that, okay? Let's get into context. Let me talk first about the context of Matthew. Jesus is ministering in his earthly ministry, and Matthew is recording that ministry. Now, as Matthew records, you should be aware that there are two particular elements of the cultural context. One is political, and one is religious. The political landscape that Matthew is recording Jesus teaching in is a political landscape that is anticipating a Messiah to come to be a religious powerhouse to get Rome out of the way. That's the politics of the day. God, you promised you would send the great general who would get these Romans out of our way. Establish us as the foremost people of the region. We thought we had it in David. Wow. Then we, we thought we had it in Solomon. But we didn't. We're waiting for the Messiah who's going to come with sword and shield, with bow and arrow and staff and javelin, and finally going to rescue us. That was the political context. But there's a religious context too, which unfortunately is very intermingled with the political context. As Jesus ministers, he ministers where there are people teaching like what the Pharisees taught. They believed that 
The key to godliness was regulation and tradition. Then there were the Sadducees. They were religious liberals. They they took what the Bible said and edited and twisted it to fit their opinions and philosophies. There were the Essenes. They believed that religion meant self-deprecation. If it's enjoyable, God must not want you to have it. The Zealots, nationalists, who saw religion as being expressed in radical political activism. So regulation tradition, religious liberalism, self-deprecation, political activism. That's the culture of Matthew 6. Thankfully, none of those things exist now, so we don't really need Matthew 6, right? Did you feel it as I read that? You're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that, okay, that. All these things still exist. The concept of Christ coming to establish some sort of nationalistic political kingdom on earth was so contrary to what Jesus himself taught. As he stood trial, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In that context, we have the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, or Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records five of the great discourses of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of the five. Simply put, listen closely, I don't have time to elaborate this, but I want it to be stated plainly. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of Old Testament moral demands or a code of conduct for religious living. Christ here is teaching followers how he surpasses all human righteousness. And the only hope is for our lives to be hidden in his. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's not an Old Testament charge to live better. Not to recalibrate our idea of sin. Like murder is sin. Oh, oh, hatred is too. Well then, the moral of the story of the Sermon on the Mount is, I shouldn't be hateful. No. The moral of the story about sin, murder, and hatred is we are guilty. Our lives must be covered in Jesus' righteousness. That's the moral of the story. Jesus is going to conclude the Sermon on the Mount by saying, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And our righteousness doesn't. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, we are sinners. And the wage for our sin is death. Our righteousness does not exceed that of scribes and Pharisees, but we can be covered in his righteousness. Okay? Now, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Lord's Prayer, this first discourse that Matthew records, there is this section on prayer. As I mentioned earlier, it would be most helpful for us to refer to this as the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer can be found, it's in John 17. That is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane and he is praying to his Father. Wonderful example of prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. This is what happens when his disciples come and say, how should we pray? 
He says, disciples, you should pray like this. So we sometimes call this the Lord's Prayer because it's the Lord teaching it, but it's really how we should pray. Jesus brings us immediately into the Father's presence. When converts, disciples asked, how should we pray? Jesus said this first. So I'm going to give you three things that I think are foundational to our practice of praying. Three things that our minds must be fixed on for us to practice praying. And Jesus gives them plainly. The first one he says is this. You want to know how to pray, you have to understand this. Pray to your Father who's in secret. Hmm. That seems to be part of the problem. Like that, that seems like it makes my prayer harder, not easier. And again, I want to be quick but plain, so listen close. As long as in our worship of God, we are chiefly occupied with our own thought or exercises, we will not meet him who is spirit. I think that's at the heart of what Jesus meant when he says, our God is in secret. In other words, he's not common. What you're going to do is not relatable conversation. Like, oh, communication. Yeah, I have communication with my kids and my parents and my friends. No, understand this. Communication with God is going to be uncommon. He uses the word secret. As long as our prayer to God continues to be chiefly occupied with our own thoughts and exercises, we will not meet God. When all that we have in our minds and our hearts are the matters of this life, then a God who is extraordinary, removed from that which is common, will be missed. To anyone who withdraws himself from all that the world has, The Father will reveal himself. The light of the Father's love will shine upon them. When you pray, pray to your Father who's in secret. Let me try to help you with a word picture. This is one that's been on my mind. I'm in the city center, and there's purchasing and buying and maybe maybe self-promotion. I heard you're looking for an employee. I need a job. Maybe there's, there's chatting with neighbors. There's all these things. There's children who are misbehaving and trying to be corrected and corralled in. And there's all that is common. Jesus, the Lord, is not there in praying. But around the corner of a well-decorated gazebo in the city center, there's a quiet place, a private place, to go away from all that that is, and to meet the Father there. I think that's the picture Jesus is painting when he says, when you pray, know that your Father's in secret. Not hard to understand, not hard to find, not hard to get with, just not common. He says this next. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is assuring us that prayer is worthwhile. 
the answer to prayer will be made clear in the blessing. Our Lord teaches us that the infinite fatherliness and faithfulness is that thing that meets us in prayer. So our part should be like a child, dependent in faith and confidence that the one to whom we pray does hear, does bless. He that comes to God must believe that he is the rewarder of those that seek him. When you pray, believe that you're praying to a father. Jesus is going to explain that. That's going to be the nature of our sermon, our father. When you pray, believe that you're praying to a God who rewards, blesses. There's a story in Greek mythology that in pity, Prometheus brought fire to man. Zeus was so angry that Prometheus had brought fire to man that Zeus tied him to a rock and then made a bird come down and eat his liver out. Okay, okay, so just hold on. When man imagined the activity of gods, that's what they expect. That tells me two things. It tells me first that people know they don't deserve blessing. It tells me that natural man understands, I am not good. I'm not good. We say it, I've done more good than bad. But we don't believe it. Just slide someone a piece of paper and say, write out how you think the gods should interact with you. Okay, Greek mythology. Well, one day, one of the gods is going to do a nice thing, and another god's going to get so mad at him for doing a nice thing to us because we don't deserve it, that he's going to have a bird eat his liver. All right, that's what you think of yourself. But Jesus says, don't think that way as children of God. Our God rewards those who seek. He gives us another foundational thing. He says this lastly, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Oh, wow. So doesn't that again seem like another argument? Like, well, then what's the point? He's already aware. And he does whatever he wants. and Nothing stays his hand. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. There is this great debate, right? Like, if I believe in God's sovereign function, why pray? It seems for just a moment to be really logical. If you believe in God's ruling hand, then why communicate anything? He's going to do what he's going to do. And for a moment, that seems reasonable. But hold on. If God doesn't sovereignly control everything, then why ask him? He has nothing to do with it. He's just hoping for the best. Why pray at all? I would tell you, friend, we pray because we have a God who rules. So we pray to him. So here, 
Jesus says, your father who knows what you need before you ask, pray to him. It might appear that this would keep us from a burden to pray. But in fact, we get here deeper insight into what prayer really is. What prayer really is. And this will strengthen our prayer. Our joy, our delight in praying. It will teach us that we do not need, as Greek mythology, as the heathen, to compel an unwilling God to listen. He's cold and distant. Uninterested in what I would pray for. This confession that he knows what we need before we ask will lead to a holy sort of thoughtfulness, meditation, silence in prayer. Leading us to a heartfelt expression, does my father know that I need this? We've been led by the Spirit of God to a certainty that our request is indeed something that according to the word we need for God's glory, we then have wonderful confidence. My Father knows that I need it. The blessing of prayer does not rise and fall on my fervent feelings. So to summarize, I would say it this way. In the moment you don't feel fit to pray, what you need most is prayer. I met a man years and years ago before even ministry here who stopped me at the back door and he said, Pastor, help me. I don't feel like praying or reading the Bible. What should I do? And I said, pray and read the Bible. The blessing of prayer does not rise and fall on our fervent feelings, but on the love and power of a father we entrust with our needs. Andrew Murray says this, remember your father is and sees and hears in secret. Go there, stay there. Go again from there in confidence. He will reward. Trust him. Depend on him. Prayer to the father cannot be in vain. He will reward. This is where Jesus starts. Jesus begins with, pray to him who's in secret. He's not common. Pray to your father who does bless. And pray to your father who's not aloof to what you need. He knows exactly what you need. There might be some small degree of hindrance to praying because you think, what if I pray for something I shouldn't have? And I get it. Rest assured, he knows what you need. And even when you ask incorrectly, Sometimes you ask incorrectly because we have selfish desires. The Bible says that. You don't get what you pray for because you're just praying for selfishness. Praying selfishly. Sometimes we don't get what we ask for because we thought we needed, but we didn't. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that those um, prayers are being carried by the very Spirit of God who always knows the mind of the Father. It's obvious that this is foundational to what Jesus wants you to know about prayer. Because right away in verse 9, after saying those three things, he says, then. So if you know that, that God kind of stands around the corner from everything common in our life and says, I don't want to step into that cloud 
into that chaos with you, but I would invite you as a dad to a child to say, let's come over here privately. I'm jealous for an intimate relationship with you. A God who does bless, hears and rewards, and a God who already knows what in fact is best. Then, he says in verse 9, so today let's consider the God to whom we pray. That was the introduction. I just have one point. We are children praying to our Heavenly Father. Our Father in Heaven. I want you to notice, first of all, the very first word. Our. You will notice as we go through this study of the Lord's Prayer that there is not one singular pronoun used in the Lord's Prayer. There's not one singular pronoun. Our Father. Forgive us. Give to us this day's need. Forgive us of our trespasses. And don't lead us into temptation. Plural. There is a sense, friends, where we should understand our praying as our praying. Even when you're away from us and you pray, it is our church's prayer life. We should understand this sense of community that real prayer invites us to. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I want you to understand the corporate identity of prayer. Even where your prayer might be in your car on the way to your next job, it is still our body of Christ praying together. And most accurately, praying together with each other seems very natural in the Lord's instruction on prayer. Our Father. Let's talk next about Dad. Our Father. Now, I am aware, and maybe you've already put the pieces together, that the last three Sundays when we've been together in the Word have been a sermon series called Doxology. And here we get to the opening of the Lord's Prayer. And the first thing we read is, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. This really, and I was briefly tempted to title this Doxology Part 4. But it's good provision for our church from God to say the same adoration of God that we ended Romans with is where we rightly have attitude of prayer to begin. Our Father. Let's talk about Father. Um, The word Father is unique because it's actually Aramaic rather than Greek. And in Aramaic, it's the word Abba. Probably you've heard a lot said about the difference between the Greek word pater, father, and the Aramaic word Abba. You've probably heard a lot, so forgive me if I'm repeating things you already know, but I want to walk through this quickly because I think it's an important part of the nature of prayer. If we're to understand the full importance of the words our father, we should realize that in the Old Testament, no single Jew ever referred to God as father. God referred to himself as having sons. For example, he called David his son. But there is not one single reference 
of someone referring to God as Father in the Old Testament. Bible scholars say this then, three things. This title of God as our Father is totally new to the people Jesus is teaching. The second word of instruction on prayer would have caused jaws to drop to the ground. What did he just say? Call God daddy? Literally. The difference between pater, father, and abba, dad. Bible scholars say this secondly. Jesus almost always used that form. Jesus, in his whole earthly ministry, referred to God as his father. There's one exception. I'll show you in a minute. Third, scholars would identify that when Jesus taught us to pray this way, Jesus was authorizing his disciples to use the same form. We, like Jesus, should pray our Father. Jesus, as I mentioned, always called God Father. That fact impresses itself in an extraordinary way on the disciples. Not only do all four of the Gospels record that Jesus used that address for his Father, but they report that he did so in prayer all of but one time. When Jesus was on the cross... 2 Corinthians 5 says he became sin for us. That's the only occasion where Jesus prayed to the Father and didn't call him his Father. He instead called him Eli, Eli. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. An expression that Jesus, as he bore our sin, understood God as judge, righteous, but not dad. He became sin for us. That prayer, unlike all the other prayers, is wrung out from Christ's lips as he was made sin for mankind. And the father relationship was momentarily fractured for the son. This is, this is great significance to our praying. This is really important. It's worth setting one whole study aside to see our Father in heaven. Jesus was the Son of God in a unique sense. And God was uniquely his Father. When he came to God in prayer... He came as God's unique son. So now, he reveals that that same relationship he shares, he teaches us, we share. Which, we could spend a moment, we could have a whole sub-point right here talking about what does it mean that we're united with Christ? What does it mean that we're covered in his righteousness? What does it mean that we're seated at the right hand of God the Father? We could have a whole wonderful conversation about he can rightly call God his Father Therefore, all those whose lives are hidden in him can likewise call him Father.
Jesus could announce to Mary when he rose from the grave. He said to Mary, go to your brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That's what he said in John 20. Mary, go tell the guys, I'm going to my father and your father. I'm going to my God and your God. He is father. Now, there is an accurate sense that could lead us to a wrong conclusion. God is the father of all created things, right? He's the origin of them. They all come out from him. He's the one who fathered everything that is. It's true, isn't it? I want us to know, though, that that truth doesn't lead to a right place regarding the way the adopted people of God in Christ pray to God, our Father. So God is Father, our Father. Let me explain what I mean by that. In trying to protect us from this error about the universal fatherhood of God, just whoever wants to pray can pray. That's not what Jesus is expressing the fatherhood of God to everything that is created. It's not what Jesus is teaching. And in fact, Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 8. So there's an occasion where people had come to Jesus to kind of question his teaching. And he says some things about, if you believe in me, you'll be set free. And in John chapter 8, the Jews answer this way. The Jews answered him saying, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anything. How can you say we're going to be set free? Jesus says, okay, I know that you're Abraham's children. However, being Abraham's children, you should do the things Abraham did. In righteous anger, Jesus replied, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now here. I have not come on my own. He sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? He answers his question. You're unable to hear what I'm saying. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. So, Jesus made it clear that there are two families, two fatherhoods. There is the family of Adam, those which are naturally born. Jesus describes, or uh, uh, Paul describes in Ephesians, that those of their father, the devil, naturally do the things of his will. And then there is God, Father, to whose family some are born of the Spirit into. That's what we're talking about here. Abba, Father. We still haven't seen everything we need to see about Father. When Jesus addresses God as Father, he doesn't use the word pater, but he uses the word daddy. What does Abba mean? Um, One of the early church fathers, his name is Chrysostom, he grew up in Antioch. And in Antioch, they likely spoke Aramaic. He writes on this passage, that this term, Abba, is a term that small children use when they express affection for a good father. Small children 
use it in expression for a good father. Hosea refers to the fatherhood of God. He says this. It was God who taught Ephraim to walk. Took him up in his arms. But they didn't know that it was God who had, he- who had helped them and healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, God said. Bands of love. I became to them as one who eases their yoke. A father. You see him? I came along and helped. They kept falling down, scuffing their knees, and I picked them up. They got all wobbly, and I braced their shoulders. That's the way Hosea describes Father God. Now, the reality is, I have to give a quick word about how the term Father doesn't soothe everyone's understanding when it comes to what God is like. It's an expression of the curse that even the word father, for some people, strikes anxiety and discomfort. Jesus addressed that. Later in this sermon, in Matthew seven eleven, he says, even your fathers who are evil sometimes give you the thing you asked for. We don't truly, fully see Jesus by having earthly dads, or the Lord by having earthly dads. Even our fathers who are evil, when we ask for bread, give bread, fish, give fish, rather than asking for fish and get snakes. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 11. But our father, we say Abba as a small child to a good father. Uh, one, I got one quick word, okay? Um, regarding fatherhood. How many of you saw the story that was on local news this morning about the man who pled guilty to the murder of his son? He and his fiance, it wasn't local, he and his fiance had, for four years, had locked their uh, young son in a room and, and starved him and tortured him. Anybody see that story yet? You saw it this morning? Um, that was one of the first things I saw this morning. Thinking about Abba, Dad, and see that. That's so disgusting. But, okay, but I want to say a word to follow that one. Um, so just to help us, because sometimes we say things we don't mean to say. If you had found out that that boy was living there and being starved and locked in a room by his dad, would you, would you have helped if you could have? If someone said, we'll save him from that, he can come live with you, would you have done that? Of course you would have. But if he lives with you for five years and then he has to leave, it's going to hurt a lot, right? Right? It's going to hurt a lot. Would you go back to the invitation to take him out of the room and bring him to your home because someday it might hurt you? Of course not. Yet, sometimes a family who is wrestling with the care and the loss 
of a child, hear someone say, that's why I could never do that. Because someday it will hurt me. Please don't ever say that again. Because it's not a good enough excuse. It's just not a good enough excuse to say, I don't want to feel bad. So he can stay in the locker room. It just won't work. Okay? It's a little pastoral and a little personal, but in love. I know you don't mean that. But it's helpful. Because there are a lot of bad dads. And therefore, a lot of kids who need someone to say, it's okay that this is going to crush me later. Right? Is that clear enough, Mr. Bell? All right. You've been there. There are a lot of dads that don't convey this. Abba, Father. But when we pray, like kids to a good dad, let me, let me just explain what it means. When you pray to father, dad, fear is gone. You're not afraid. Loneliness is gone. I have a dad listening closely. Selfishness should be gone. My dad is hearing me and knowing what I need. And it settles the matter of obedience. No matter how he's teaching us to learn to walk, we know that he's teaching us the right way. There's a sense where God is the Father, creator of all. There's a sense where we pray to him as Abba. I think, I think knowing the distinction between God is the creator of all, therefore you could say in some sense he's Father, and knowing that when we pray, we're supposed to pray, Dad. I think that's explained in John chapter 3. Would you turn your Bibles to John chapter 3? <laughs> in John chapter 3, a man, a religious man, comes to Jesus, and he's very confused. He's a guy that's supposed to be teaching the Scriptures, but he's embarrassed that he can't. So one night after it's dark, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus in verse 2, Rabbi, in other words, he confesses, you're a teacher that I trust. We know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you've done unless he's from God. And Jesus answered him, that's true. And the man named Nicodemus never gets to his question but Jesus answers it. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, Nicodemus does not understand. And he says to him, can we enter a second time into our mother's womb? And Jesus says, truly, I I'm, say to you, I'm not talking about being born a second time. I'm talking about being born unnaturally, spiritually. So he says this in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, that thing stays flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, to be born 
into God's family is to be born of the Spirit of God. Don't marvel what I say that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is maybe some sense where everyone feels like they can pray, Our Father. I want you to understand that there is an amazing sense where all of us who have been born of the Spirit of God can truly say, Our Dad in heaven, holy is your name. Abba, Father. What's remarkable is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember when I mentioned before, Jesus in the upper room walks across town, prays the Lord's Prayer, John 17. Mark records him getting to the Garden of Gethsemane, inviting his disciples to pray. They should have said, Our Dad in heaven, holy is your name. But they slept instead. Jesus went on a little farther and Jesus begins to pray and Jesus, Mark records it with the Aramaic translation, Mark records it, Abba, Father. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. That is a beautiful expression of just what he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. He's in the garden and he prays, Dad, if there's a way for this to pass, please, but if not, your will be done. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Arrest, mock trial, taken to the cross. Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So he became sin, saying, God, righteous judge, our communion is fractured. I'm wearing sin now. So that you and I could pray, Dad, you are holy. I'm wearing the blood of Christ now. That's where prayer starts. So I said in the opening, I don't know that we need like to set a prayer alarm. Okay. I won't stop praying until 45 minute alarm goes off. That's not really my pastoral burden for us. Well, that would be wonderful. In no way am I saying that's a bad thing. But first... I want us to have prayer in our praying. So just walk back with me 30 seconds. Jesus, who says, Abba, Father, I want this to pass for me, but your will be done, then goes to the cross and says, Eli, Eli. So that we can say, Dad, I'm wearing Jesus' blood and righteousness now, and you are holy. And I wonder, friend, what do we say next? So there's a sense where every teacher should know his audience. But prayer is somewhat complicated in that. Because there's so much about prayer that is intensely personal. So this should sound less like indictment and more like confession. 
If what follows, Dad, I'm wearing Christ's righteousness. His blood covers me. You're in heaven and holy. And my Uncle Tim's knee's really been acting up. Could you just make that better for him? And, oh, yeah, and by the way, I got this weird ticking sound in the car. Um, I just I pray that it'll, you know, get me to work today. So, again, that's, I'm not trying to make fun of, because I don't know exactly how you pray, but sometimes if my prayer sounds like that, I don't want to come back to that. I, there's no part of my soul that delights in that. Like, that's Greek mythology, right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize our prayer as much as I'm saying I think as a church it's obvious to me that we, we really want worship. I'm thankful that the Spirit of God has worked in us and worship is a delight to our soul. So why does prayer sometimes feel different? We sang this morning, we're going to sing right now. Uh, Josh is going to come and, and lead our worship and we're going to sing holy, holy, holy. All the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. All the cherubim and seraphim are falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. And we won't get through that stanza and go, oh, do I have to sing another stanza? We're going to wish the song didn't end. You're going to wish, I believe, the work of the Spirit in you is producing things like joyfulness about worship. And you're going to think, oh, can we just sing that again? And really, Josh, if you truly love us, when we sing it the second time, we'll sing it a cappella. Amen? I love when the worship leaders, you go ahead and do it the way you planned. You've, you're already prepared. But I love when the worship leaders let us sing a cappella. You know what God's favorite instrument is? The one he made. This one. Nah, my little plug. Whatever. You're going to sing, and you're going to want more. Yet, maybe you're like me. And prayer a lot of times doesn't feel that way. And I'm just telling you that it's my opinion, as I look at the Lord's Prayer, that when prayer loses its substance, it becomes something we feel obligated to do, but not really joyful to do. And the substance of prayer is the one to whom we pray. When we pray this way, a child of God, listening to our good teacher, Jesus, telling us to go to private relationship with God in Christ. And that our first thought should be, our Father in his high place, separated from my own self-consumed thoughtfulness, lifting me up out of distraction, setting me free from temporal burden, and lifting me to delight in eternal reality, I think I'll want to go back there often. I think you do too. Let's pray. Our Father, this glorious adoption is not just a doctrinal reality, God, that we confess as our eternal security but it shapes the way our days start in prayer or end in prayer. The way we pray ceaselessly. To start with our dad in heaven, 
holy is your name shapes shapes everything we want shapes everything we pray next oh good father thank you for teaching us how to pray in jesus name amen